so much for retirement, you know. <laughs> but really happy to be back here at Grace Church. <clears throat> you know, when Aaron uh, asked me to, <clears throat> excuse me, to preach this Sunday, I'm kind of wondering if it was intentional that he knew it was the Sunday we were all going to get one hour less sleep. <laughs> and uh, so, but um, I'll do my best to keep you awake and to keep me awake. I don't want to be like the pastor who was dreaming that he was preaching, and when he woke up, he was. <laughs> that could be embarrassing. But what I learned over, over the years as a pastor, I, I never, I really don't talk in my sleep, but I talk in a lot of other people's sleep. And um, now some of you are thinking, man, you need some new material. <laughs> But you're right. But um, the passage we're going to look at today, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, I invite you to turn to it. Turn in your Bible or turn on your Bible or page 992 in the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow there. And the passage we're going to look at today, uh, in this passage, Paul exhorts Timothy to tell the believers in the church of Ephesus how to behave. So I've entitled this message, How to Behave in Church. How to Behave in Church. <clears throat> Let me read that passage uh, for you. Paul writes, I, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let me just pray before I continue. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And because we've just read your word, we know that you have spoken. So our prayer this morning is not that you would speak, but that we would listen and that we would hear your word, that we'd have open hearts and open ears to hear whatever it is uh, you want to say to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> If you've grown up in the church, your parents probably taught you how to behave. And if you're a parent, you probably have tried to teach your kids how to behave in church. And um, as a pastor, it's especially important to, to do that <laughs> and um, to teach your kids how to behave in church. And uh, we were fairly successful at that, um, <clears throat> with a few exceptions. Uh, one time in particular that comes to mind was something that one of our sons, one of our four sons, said to the teacher in children's church. Uh, I don't want to mention which of the four boys it was, but Aaron, it wasn't you. And uh, 
Dan and Mike, if you're listening online, it wasn't you. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it was around the time when the movie Home Alone came out. And uh, our boys had seen it quite a few times and memorized some of the lines from the movie. And, and this particular Sunday in Children's Church, the, the uh, elderly woman who was teaching that they were leading, she was passing the offering plate. And as this particular nameless son um, went to put his offering in the offering basket, he said, keep the change, you filthy animal. <laughs> now, the young mothers laughed because they all had seen the movie and they knew the quote. But apparently, this woman hadn't seen the movie. So she came to see me. <laughs> so it's important that we learn how to behave. In fact, some of you might be here today thinking, oh, I wish my kids were here to to hear this, how to behave. But you know, my guess is you need to hear this more than your kids do. Because adults, parents, grown-ups need to know how to, to, to behave, to relate to others uh, in, the, in the church. So um, the title, um, uh, How to Behave in Church, is three, three, I want to look at this under three headings. I'll give them to you up front, and then um, we'll go look at each one. The first one is the call to godly behavior. The second is the context of godly behavior. And the third is the capacity for godly behavior. By the way, Aaron didn't write this outline. I, I wrote this my, myself. But before we get into the outline, I just I want to comment on, if you look at the passage, I want to comment on just that verse 14 and 15 before we get into the outline. See where he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know <clears throat> how one ought to behave. Uh, the, Paul wanted to come to Ephesus to see Timothy again. He left him there and wanted to come see him again. <clears throat> and he was... Uh, <laughs> thanks. He was... Uh, afraid he was going to be delayed. Now, we don't know exactly if he... Well, we know he was delayed, but we, a lot of uh, commentators believe he never made it back to Ephesus. He wanted to go there and be with Timothy, but he anticipated a possible delay. And because of that, he wrote this epistle. Just think about that. We, we have this part of Scripture because of a delay or a potential delay or even a denial of Paul's desire to want to go to the city. And, and as I was reading, I'm thinking, boy, you know, sometimes God uses delays in our lives or sometimes even denials to accomplish something that he wants to accomplish. And, uh, you know, maybe you're here today and you... Uh, You've been waiting on God, and you're just not sure why he hasn't come through yet. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a husband or wife. Or maybe it's a, a physical condition. 
uh, a sickness and you've been, God just hasn't come through yet. And you're wondering, man, what, what's, what's up with that? But let me just encourage you, you know, maybe God is doing something that you don't realize what he's doing. And just like Paul here, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have this scripture we're reading today. So God, uh, those delays, denials that you're experiencing maybe today, um, hang in there. Don't quit. Keep going. Keep trusting. Keep calling, calling out to the Lord. So, well, I just threw that in for free before we get into the outline. So not the whole sermon, Aaron, just that part, okay? We threw in for free. But let's go to the call, the call to godly behavior. The call to godly behavior. And we, we've seen it. We, we've read it in the beginning of uh, verse 15. That you may know, ought to believe, ought to know how to behave. And uh, Paul is giving instructions to Timothy to tell these believers how they should behave. Uh, that literally, that phrase, some, some translations say how to conduct yourselves. Literally, the phrase is how it is necessary to behave. Literally, is what the, the wording is there. And the behavior that he's calling people to really is summed up in one word. And that's why I've used the term godly behavior, and that is godliness. Godliness. You see it down in verse uh, 16. You see the mystery of godliness he refers to there. And that's one of the favorite words of, Tim, uh, of Paul. In fact, he uses it ten times in this epistle. <clears throat> Godly or godliness. And, and basically what it is, it's just living in a way that reflects the character of God. It's God-likeness. It's really God-centeredness. Is that God would permeate uh, all of your life. And you know... Um, we know false teaching was one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter, but he wanted to tell, the, tell Timothy, to tell the believers not only what to believe, but how to behave. See, in fact, it's, it's several times later in the epistle, uh, in, in chapter 4, verse 11, Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. You see, command and teach. The command is more the behavior, the teach the belief. And then he says again in 5 7, command these things as well. In chapter 6, verse 17, he says, command those who are rich in this world not to be proud. You know, most Christians and church members don't mind being told what to believe, but they don't want to be told how to behave. You know, it, 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 they may not say it, but oftentimes the attitude is, you can tell me what to believe, but don't tell me how to live. Now, if that's your attitude, you don't understand the purpose of the Word of God and the role of spiritual leaders in a church. Because God's Word is not just, it's not just about information. It's about transformation. God wants to, through His Word, change us and change our behavior and our conduct, not just our knowledge. And you know, over the years of ministry, I've known a lot of very biblically knowledgeable Christians who are so spiritually immature. 
You know, sometimes we equate Bible knowledge with spiritual maturity. They're not the same. Because God's word is intended to, 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 uh, 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 to change us. In fact, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, some of you know that verse. All scripture is breathed out by God. And listen to this. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Of the four things that he says the word of God, the purpose of the word of God is, one of those four is teaching. The other three all have to do with behavior. You see, for, uh, teaching, it tells us what's right, tells us what's true. Reproof, it tells us when we're wrong. Correction, it tells us how to get right. And then training in righteousness it tells us how to stay right. So uh, Paul is clearly telling Timothy that, Timothy, teach them the word of God, but tell them how to behave. And I hope that you are open to hearing how God's word wants to affect and change your behavior. Well, let's keep going. The context for godly behavior. And the context for godly behavior is the, is the church. He's talking about how people should conduct themselves really in the church and as the church. Now, again, godly behavior is important wherever we go, everywhere. But here, Paul is specifically telling Timothy how to tell the people how to behave amongst one another in the church. And notice, look at the terms that he uses to describe the church, verse 15. First, the household of God. He refers to, to the church as the household of God. In other words, it's a family. He's referring to the church as a family. In fact, this isn't the first time he's used the word household. Some of you may recall when Aaron just recently talking about the role of the elders and the deacons. Earlier in chapter 3, uh, Paul wrote for, for the qualifications for elders. You remember this? He must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So he's talking about that man's home. He said the, how you manage your home is an indicator of how you're going to lead in the church. And then to deacons, he says, let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. See, so the church is the household of God, the, the, the family of God. And uh, all believers, if you know Jesus Christ today as your Savior and Lord, you are a part of God's family. God's your Father. You are His child. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, as a Christian, you're not an only child. You've got brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to know how to relate to, to one another. Um, <clears throat> by the way, did you know that all of God's children are adopted? God has no natural children. They're all adopted. In fact, listen to these verses from Galatians chapter 4. God sent him, <clears throat> that is Christ, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that 
he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. If you're a believer today, it's because God adopted you. He actually wanted you. Isn't that awesome? I mean, in spite of everything in your life that you've done or haven't done, he still wanted you. And he adopted you. You know, over the years, I've said to people, uh, I've asked people, so, so when did you become a Christian? And some of them have said, oh, I've always been a Christian. And I say, well, not really. Unless your last name's Christian. Then I guess, you, you know, you've been a Christian your whole life. And I knew some people whose last name were Christian. So, yeah, they've been Christians their whole life. But... Uh, but no one's been a, been a Christian their whole life because you're not born a Christian. You know how you become a Christian, right? You're born again, not born. So if, if uh, it's not, it's a spiritual birth. You've all had a physical birth, and a spiritual birth is what <clears throat> brings us into the family of God. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of God, or nor the will of man, but of God. So all Christians are members of the family of God. And let's keep going. Look what else, how else he describes the church. He says, the church of the living God. And again, the word church there <clears throat> is the word ecclesia. It's a term that was used um, in secular Greek. I'm going to take us through this. <clears throat> Nothing like good New Jersey water. Oh, actually, that's Poland Springs, but, uh, you know. But the church of the living God, the word church, ecclesia, it's a word that was used back in the, in the day in a secular sense to refer to gatherings of people or assemblies of people, sometimes a political body of people that was used to refer to their gatherings. <clears throat> and it became the term that was used to describe the gathering of believers. And... Um, uh, the, the community of believers and, you know, the, the church in the New Testament, you sometimes refer to all believers of all time in all places. But most often the word church is used in the New Testament to refer to a local assembly of believers, the local church. And the expectation is that if you are a Christian, a member of the, the universal church, God's intention and desire for you is to be a member of the local church and to gather. You know, I realized um, <clears throat> during COVID, we you know, kind of got used to not gathering. And, you know, some people say, oh, this is kind of nice. You know, just being in church in my pajamas and, and uh, a lot of ease. You don't have to get out. But God's intention is that the church gather, that we assemble, that we be together. And, and he refers to the church of the living God. And probably that term living God 
is intentional in the sense of the city of Ephesus. You know that they had all kinds of gods in Ephesus. The many false gods, lifeless gods. They worshipped all these idols. And Paul says, hey, you're the church of the living God. In fact, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, he's, he commended them. And he refers to their conversion and says, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that's what he's saying here. Hey, we are members of the church of the living God. Thank God for that. And let's, one more term he used to describe the church. To see the pillar and buttress of the truth, that the church is to uphold and, and to be grounded in the truth of God's word. And once again, you see the word pillar there? Aaron showed a picture a couple weeks ago of the, the um, temple of Artemis and all the pillars. I believe they have like 100 pillars, almost 60 feet high. And uh, so when, when Paul uses this term uh, in this letter, people would say, oh, the pillars, the buttress of the, the, the church is to be that place that uh, preserves the truth, protects the truth from false teaching, and proclaims the truth to, to the world. Um, you know, there's a lot, we hear a lot these days about um, fake news and misinformation and disinformation and, uh, in politics and social media. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not just in those places, but even in the church at times. Church, some churches today have stopped proclaiming the truth because the culture doesn't like it and doesn't accept it and doesn't agree with it. So the church has backed off and said, man, we better not make any ways. Let's fit in. Man, that, that's exactly what the church is not to do. The church needs to proclaim the truth. And um, regardless of what the culture may like or not like. In fact, there, there's a lot of people today who, you, you've heard this I'm sure over the years, make the statement that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Everyone has their own truth. That may, you know, Jesus is the only way to heaven. Well, that may be true for you, but not for me. Well, and in fact, and they'll say there is no absolute truth. Do you realize that anyone who makes that statement is making a self-contradictory statement because they're saying there is no absolute truth except what they just said, that there's no absolute truth. See, so even that statement really doesn't, doesn't make sense because they're making an absolute statement if they make that statement. But we know that there is absolute truth and, and God's word is absolute truth. And we as the church have to make sure that we are faithful in uh, declaring the truth, even uh, though it's getting less and less popular. You know, our, our culture is getting more and more anti-God, anti-Christian, and now is the time for us not to back off. We're the pillar, the foundation of the truth, and we've got to be faithful to that. Well, let's wrap it up. The capacity for godly behavior. So I'm going to have to move quickly here. Um, uh, for those of you who are older, I'm going to talk 78 speed, all right? If you don't know what 78 speed is, talk to your parents when you get home and ask them, all right? 
the capacity for godly behavior. See verse 16, the mystery of godliness is the key to godly behavior. The word mystery, as you use here, you know, it's not mystery in the sense that we use it. Oh, yeah, it's uh, it's a good mystery, that book or that movie, it's a mystery. Mystery in the New Testament really could be defined as something that was at one time hidden, but now has been revealed. And he refers here to the mystery of godliness. And essentially what he's saying that is, is the person and work of Christ. The gospel. And we're going to see that. You see where he says, um, great indeed we confess is the mystery of the gospel. That, That word confess that the ESV has some other translations say what we agree on without controversy. In other words, what he's about to say is this is something we all affirm and that we know to be true. This mystery of godliness. And uh, the form of this, in fact, if you look, if you have an ESV Bible, that this statement, the, the rest of verse 16, uh, <clears throat> You'll notice it's set off like a little, you know, a little separate uh, paragraph, like some stanzas there. The reason for that is it's believed this was an early creed that the church would have known. In other words, it's not something that Paul was writing for the first time, but that he was probably quoting a creed that they would have known. And I noticed as you've begun reciting the Apostles' Creed, That's really what they did back then. There were certain things that over time developed statements of of biblical truth that people would have known and memorized. In fact, even we sang the song today, the the, the creed. You notice the, the lines of that song? Those were just essential, foundational biblical truths. And that's what it is here. In fact, the ESV has it... There's, there's disagreement as to what the structure of these, this, the rest of this verse should be. The, if you have an ESV translation, you notice it's got two stanzas of three lines each. Something That's probably how, how Paul intended this or how the church used it. If you have an NIV Bible, it's got three stanzas of two lines each. They actually put it in the translation in your, your, your Bible that way. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it just has six statements, all one under another. So, however, whatever Paul's intent was, doesn't really matter. It's what the content. But I would tend to view these things as six statements. In fact, they all, there are six verbs. Look at, look at, look at it. Manifested, vindicated, seen, proclaimed, believed, taken up. So just that seems to suggest that this was originally written to be something that the people could could memorize. In fact, you know what's interesting? In Greek, all six of those verbs begin with the same vowel. It's called assonance. In other words, the same vowel sound. And so, again, it's probably a p- intended poetic. So when Aaron and I come up with our outlines with the same, you know, consonant at the beginning, that's biblical. We're just being biblical, and that's why we do it. But so, so these six lines, let's look at them, and we'll, we'll wrap up with the, these six. He was manifested in the flesh. Clearly, the reference there is to the incarnation. 
that Jesus became and took on human flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the incarnation that Jesus became man is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. <clears throat> Next one, vindicated by the Spirit. Uh, some of you have the word trans, uh, translated justified, but it's the idea that proved to be vindicated by the Spirit. Now, but vindicated by the Spirit could be um, that you're... Um, the, the, well, the Holy Spirit was evident throughout Jesus' life. Remember, you, you remember at his baptism, remember? And then uh, when he read from the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said, this has been fulfilled. So the Spirit of God was, was there throughout the ministry, right up to the end of Christ. But probably, if these were intended to be chronological, it probably is a reference to the resurrection. That because that was the ultimate vindication of who Jesus was, the fact that he rose from the dead. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, he has shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, later in Romans, Paul writes, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So again, probably... If you're following in chronological, you've got the incarnation, then the resurrection. Then next is seen by angels. See that one? Again, angels were present throughout the ministry of Jesus, but probably here referring to the ascension. Remember when Jesus ascended? He commissioned the apostles. He ascended, and there were two angels who were there and said, Hey, guys, why are you looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has gone up. So it's probably a reference to his ascension. And uh, next, proclaimed among the nations. You see, the, the uh, incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, and then Jesus commissioned the disciples to go tell it, to proclaim this. And that's what they did. Believed not in the world. That's, that, the response of the proclamation was that people believe, and it's a good thing, because they did, we're here. And we, we are, in a sense, part of that. We who have believed. And then finally, taken up into glory. Now, again, some say, well, how could it be chronological? It sounds like he's circling back to the ascension here. But the emphasis of taken up into glory here, I believe, is em the emphasis is on glory, that Jesus is in glory. He's ascended he's at the right hand of the Father, uh, interceding for us in anticipation of his return someday. So taken up in glory, I think it probably includes all that. So in a sense, you could define this creed or this hymn with these four words. Incarnation, resurrection, ascension, proclamation, salvation, glorification. See, those are essential parts of the gospel and its impact in the world. So the capacity for godliness, you know where it comes from? It comes from Jesus. It's the gospel. Because really, this is, in a sense, the gospel. Second Timothy, or 1 Timothy 3.16. By the way, can you think of another 3.16 that has the gospel? For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. And this is a little bit more extensive explanation of that gospel. But what he's saying here, I believe in part, is that the person and work of Christ in a believer is what enables us to live a godly life. You cannot live a godly life without this Jesus and the mystery of his presence in you through his spirit. You can't do it. And so many people have tried. I just can't. You're right. You can't do it unless you have the, the, the person and work of Christ working in your life. In fact, the um, one translation, uh, the NIV translation, translates 416 this way, the, the first part of the verse. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. So it's those statements about Jesus. That's where... Uh, the godliness comes from. See, godly behavior has to be grounded in godly belief. The, the foundation of godly behavior is truth. And I think that's what Paul's pointing out to Timothy. Timothy, you got to teach people how to behave. But don't forget, it's the truth of the gospel that enables people to live the way they're intended, that he intends for us. See, you can't live a godly life unless you have the living God in your life. And I hope that everyone here today has it, has him in your heart. And because in a church setting, when you've got Christ in your life, that's what enables you to relate to one another in in a way, in the way that he is commanding us here. In fact, one last verse, Galatians 6.10, the priority of behaving this way, he, Paul writes, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but listen to this, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, some people are nicer to people out there than they are to people in here. He said, no, man, this is where it starts. And I hope that by God's grace and his spirit in you, he'll enable you to do it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for adopting us into your family, those who have accepted the gift of salvation. And Father, if there's anyone here today who hasn't been adopted into your family, would you just nudge that person to take that step of faith today and to accept your desire to adopt them by believing and receiving and becoming a child of God. And Father, for all who have, I pray that we would uh, relate to one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in a way that would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.